Welcome back, everybody. I'm Katie. And I'm Kate. And this is Premeditated. We're so excited to spend another week talking about murder with you guys. Murder. Murder. (laughs) We also, we wanted to thank everybody for their awesome feedback and comments on our episodes so far. We have gotten so many awesome Facebook and Instagram messages and shout outs. No trolls. No trolls so far. No trolls so far. That's not an invitation, but. Clearly means we haven't made it, you know? Yeah, I know. I feel like, why don't somebody get in there and bully us? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but also don't. But no. also don't. don't do that. Is my is really low as it is. I'm really sensitive. Oh, so don't do that. Oh no, but seriously, it's been awesome. We are now available like everywhere you listen to podcasts. So we're available on Apple Podcasts. We're available on Spotify. We're available anywhere you guys want to listen to us. Well, should we go ahead and get started? I'm super excited to talk about my case this week. Once again, I got really wrapped up in it. All you did was send me a picture of the house that it happened at. Yeah. That was enough to creep me out. So yeah, so this week, I'm super excited to talk about a local to Minnesota murder. So several years ago, my Aunt Julie lent me a book called Famous Crimes, Stories of Law and Order in Minnesota by Sherry O'Meara and Merle Minda. These are their stories. Dun, dun. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So I read this book back when she lent it to me, and I remembered reading an interesting case about a woman named Carol Thompson. I went back and I reread the story in The Famous Crimes, and then I also read another book called Dial M, The Murder of Carol Thompson by William Swanson. All right. So let's talk a little bit about Carol Thompson. So Carol was born as an only child to a man named Otto and a woman named Antonia or Tony Swoboda. And she was born on October 11th, 1928 in St. Paul. Her dad was a successful plumber and heating contractor. He like, during this time period, he was heating places like 3M and other big companies in the Twin Cities. So if you're not from the Twin Cities, yeah. So he was very successful. And her mom was a a stay-at-home mom. Carol, growing up, was a little bit shy, but she broke out of her shell when her parents kind of encouraged her to join a bunch of clubs. So before we knew it, Carol was a huge extrovert. She was a good kid, went to school in Highland Park, which is uh, a nice area of St. Paul, and she graduated at the top of her class. So St. Paul has lots of different beautiful areas, one of which is, is Highland Park. It's a It's a gorgeous area. Still to this day is one of the nicer areas of of St. Paul. Very well sought after. Yeah, so that's where Carol was born. Now, Carol went to college at McAllister and she majored in English and also library science and she studied Russian. I would have loved library sciences. They would not have loved me. No, you would have been like, do you remember the show All That with Lori Lori Beth Gimber? Uh, Lori Beth, whatever. And she'd be like, this is a library! (laughs) That would be you. You're telling everyone to be quiet and you're going around vacuuming and like not really yelling you'd just be talking everyone's ear off and my version of a whisper is like hey (laughs) uh so she went to McAllister I thought it was really interesting that she studied Russian because like during this time Cold War was like heating up right I don't know nothing ever comes of that but I just thought it was really interesting so it was at McAllister that she met a man named Tilmer Eugene Thompson. Tilmer? Right? Isn't that a great name? Oh my god! I've never heard it before, but I actually really like it. So Tilmer was uh, born in Blue Earth, Minnesota, 1927 to Tilmer was his dad's name and Josephine Thompson. He was the fifth of seven children and he was given the name Cotton by his friends and family because he had like stark blonde hair. Oh! 
Oh, yeah. So okay. he goes by a lot of different names throughout this. He goes by like T, Tilmer, Gene, Eugene, Cotton. I'm going to try and just use Cotton because I like that. <laughs> if you hear me say T or Gene or Eugene or T, Eugene, I'm talking about this guy. Wasn't the bad guy in Scream called Cotton? Cotton Weary, you're right. Yeah, that's all I think of. I, well, because well, I love Leaf Shri- I know. Shrievers. So Cotton, he was given this name Cotton because he has super, super blonde hair. So um, unfortunately, Tilmer's dad left their family when he was a kid and he moved in with another woman. What is with all these dads just taking <sighs> off? Cotton never forgave his dad. They never had a relationship throughout the rest of his life. And Cotton's mom passed away pretty early as well. So he just didn't really have any close family. Funny story about about Cotton. Uh, When he was in school up in Blue Earth, he became close friends with a guy named Walter Mondale. (laughs) Yeah, the two of them had plans to grow up and go to law school and enter public public work together. And Walter (laughs) was like, I'm going to become president. And Walter Mondale actually did become vice president under Jimmy Carter. So that was super cool. So yeah, so Walter Mondale and Cotton were good friends growing up. But unfortunately, Cotton dropped out of school his senior year to join the Navy. It was towards the end of World War II and he just felt a calling. He served for several years and and got out of the Navy and then also started school at McAllister for college. And like I said, that's where he and Carol met. So Carol ended up leaving school her sophomore year to get married. And Carol's parents were pretty bummed that she was leaving school, but they also loved Cotton. So they were like, you know, we love the guy. Pretty typical. Yeah, what women were doing at the time. So yeah, Carol quit school and and got married. So Cotton actually started attending law school at the St. Paul College of Law, which was later renamed William Mitchell. Billy Mitch is my alma mater. Go Eel Pouts. So after law school, Cotton started practicing in downtown St. Paul and became a really successful attorney. He practiced divorce, personal injury, criminal law. He was like kind of a jack of all trades, which is very unique for attorneys. You usually kind of stick with one of those. Yeah. So to have uh, experience in all of those things was was pretty unique. Just he, dabbling. Yeah, he was just dabbling. dabbling in each yeah, and in addition, he was the village attorney for North St. Paul, which is, he was a prosecutor. So, I mean, he was doing criminal, you know, defense. He was doing personal injury, which is civil. He was doing prosecution and family law. So he was just doing everything. Wow. Um, he was known to be a snappy dresser. He had expensive taste. Snappy. He called it a, a healthy appreciation for money. So he he said he had a healthy appreciation for money. I have a healthy appreciation for money. I know. I mean, don't we all? <laughs> but he was described as lively, colorful, and just like fun to be around. A lot of people called him a character. He was also described as self-absorbed, narcissistic. He was also known to be a flirt and he wasn't shy about being outwardly flirty towards, towards other women. Meanwhile, these were completely different than Carol. Carol was described as principled and caring. She was cheerful, fun-loving, and she was super super popular. Like I said, she was an extrovert. She learned how to do all of these. She was interested in tons of activities. That's how she kind of got out of her shell when she was younger. So she was known to be loved by everybody. Truly, there was just everyone had nothing to say, but awesome things about Carol. She taught Sunday school. She was a brownie troop leader. She was just a good mom. People explained that she would, after school, when her kids would come home, she would make them all milkshakes and just sit there and like chat with them about their day. Just just wanted to know about their day. She loved it. She was like, this is what she wanted to do. She wanted to be a mom and and that she was good at it. She was really good at crafting. So she was a good knitter. Oh, I can appreciate that. Oh, I love knitting and reading. And she was an excellent seamstress. She made 
made all of her own clothes, all of her kids' clothes. She did. She just like was fantastic at sewing. And she was just modest. She like, she wasn't out there buying fancy things or anything like that. She, she, she made their clothes. She didn't have a healthy appreciation no, for money? No, she did not have a healthy appreciation for money. So she oh. was like, she was very, very different than Cotton in that way. So together, Cotton and Carol had four kids. They had a son named Jeffrey and then three daughters, Patricia or Patty, Margaret and Amy. They also had a wiener dog named Shotzi. <laughs> who I know who was known to bark at strangers and was pretty loud. So they unfortunately did get rid of the dog about a month before the, uh, the crime occurred. Oh, uh, so which yep. we'll talk about that a little bit later. So uh Cotton and Carol were married for 15 years. And, you know, like most upper middle class families at the time, Cotton went to work, Carol stayed home. While everyone knew Cotton to be like a flirt, nobody thought that he would actually like act on it. So he was he was everyone everyone knew him to be a very flirty guy, but but also everybody was like, nah, that's just who he is, his personality. March 6th, 1963. The morning was just a typical March morning in Minnesota for the Thompson family. It was it was snowing a little bit. So that morning, the family of six ate breakfast together in their Highland Park home. Cotton brought their oldest son, Jeff, to school, and then he headed into his office in St. Paul. So it was a little bit strange that Cotton joined them for breakfast that morning because it's, for whatever reason, I'm like, Seems very strange, but I guess if he was up late most nights, maybe, but he would usually not go into the office until like 10 or 1030 in the morning. <laughs> do you know many attorneys no, who do that? No. And like his son, Jeffrey, said he would leave to school, go to school around eight and his dad would like still be sleeping. So he was up and at him with the family that morning, ate breakfast. And another strange thing, uh, Cotton drove Jeff to school that day. Again, normally Jeff, Jeffrey walked to school. It was like eight blocks away. Yeah, but Jeffrey's like, he was like, it was so close. I didn't need a ride. I'm like, eight blocks is not, that's about a mile. Once in his office, Cotton called Carol to discuss their evening's plans. So around 9 a.m., one of the neighbors, Miss Pearson, was having her morning coffee and she looked out her living room window and she saw what she thought was a naked woman lying in, in the lawn of one of her neighbors. Oh my goodness. So it was March. It was cold. There was snow coming down. And she's like, what in the hell? And then she sees this woman get up. This like half naked woman get up and start staggering to another neighbor's doorstep and, and rang the doorbell. Now, this other neighbor, Ruth Nelson, was was listening to the 9 a.m. news in her home when her doorbell rang and she opened the door to find this woman lying on her doorstep. So she was wearing a blue bathrobe. She wasn't wearing shoes and she was just absolutely covered in blood. She was so bloody that later Miss Nelson said that she thought that Carol had been burned because she wasn't able able to tell who the woman was she thought like the, the blood was, was unrecognizable so, and she was like so bloody and red and like dark red blood that she thought this woman like had been burned so she saw this like dark <sighs> dark blood covering oh this woman and she could see that she had something st- like sticking out of her neck she couldn't tell what was that's what I, I wondered if it was a neck wound so she had a big injury to like her head was completely cut up. She had a large injury injury to her right eye and she was hardly able to speak, but managed to say a man came to the door and also help me. So that was like the, the few things that she was able to say. A man came to the door and helped me. So uh, Miss Pearson, who was, you know, the initial neighbor that was like, there's a staggering woman outside, calls her husband, who's a doctor. Call, he's in the other room. Oh, my like, God. That's just sheer luck. Right. And yeah. says, like, we need to get over to this house across the street. There's there's this woman that clearly is injured. So he gets over there and administers CPR and first aid. And it wasn't until he cleaned off her face a little bit that they all realized it was Carol Thompson. So nobody until this moment 
they all thought like this is a stranger. stranger. They were asking like, who are you? Yeah. And she was mumbling something that that didn't make sense. And it wasn't until she was cleaned off a little bit that they that they figured out who it was. And they were just shocked, you know. And I, this woman was like a, a housewife, or yeah, her, a neighbor in this very nice neighborhood in St. Paul. And here she is, you know, telling them some man had come to her house asking for help, completely bloodied and, and battered, and and yeah. And then she was also able to say, "I got a knife stuck in my throat," so she could barely talk. You know, man came to the door, help me. I have a knife stuck in my throat. But at that time, Carol was they they got called nine one one. Carol got rushed to the hospital. The neighbors called Cotton to tell him that there had been an accident and that Carol was hurt. But he isn't it before he's usually at work? So yeah, this is yeah. So this is all before he's normally at work. You know, not until ten or ten thirty. But that day. He had breakfast with them early. He left his house earlier. Got it. Okay. And so he was at the office by that time. So he sounded stunned and rushed home with a business associate. He didn't go to the hospital, which a lot of people questioned and thought was a little bit bizarre. He came home first. I think it yeah. was very much like, I don't want to freak you out. So like, just know that your yeah. wife is very hurt. Yeah. And so after they called Cotton and after, you know, that they started, you know, they brought her to the hospital. Officers went down to Carol's house and they, and they, you know, checked around There were footsteps in the fresh snow on her front steps uh, to the sidewalk. Looked like men's footprints. They had blood on them. There was also pooled blood near the front door. And there was obviously, like, there had been a struggle, but, you know, kind of between the front door and the kitchen. The master bedroom was upstairs, and it looked like it had been completely ransacked. Drawers were pulled out everywhere, and it was just a complete mess. There was stuff everywhere between, essentially between the bedroom and downstairs. It was clearly, like, the struggle was between the bedroom, down the stairs, front door kitchen area it was just basically all over the house it was it was and it was clearly chaos. a struggle but in this situation <laughs> she kept a nice house yeah. and they had recently um put a lot of money into redoing their house they had like repainted their living room and dining area like robin's egg blue because oh. it was her favorite color they had added new carpet they had like redone the fireplace so they had just spent a bunch of money redoing the house and and now it was completely trashed a couple strange things that they noted the bathtub upstairs was like half full like it looked like somebody had like maybe she started started a bath. Running a bath. It was it was just a half full bathtub. The water was cold. There was a thick rubber hose in the bathroom. What? Yeah. Like what? A thick rubber hose. It was like this. I can't remember how. It was like nineteen inches long. Fourteen. There were footprints prints through the snow. And what the detectives made was that Mrs. Thompson had run to the doors of two of her other neighbors. So from her house oh to God. neighbor one, knocked on the door. Didn't answer. Neighbor two knocked on the door. That didn't is my, answer. like one of my biggest fears is <laughs> like you're being attacked and you're like knocking on doors and no one's answering. Yeah. So in this situation though, it was like the two neighbors, they weren't just ignoring her. They, they, they weren't home, you know, during this time. Oh yeah, that's true. During yeah. that time, like everyone's going to open a real bit. Right. During like, this time, everyone opened the doors these days. I don't care if you are dying no. on my step. I will not. Open I've the often door wondered to you. what I would do in that situation. I would call the police. I would call the police and I would shout encouragement yeah. through the door. If I could see someone, if it was like a scream situation where I'm like watching them get attacked, maybe I don't know. I could, you know you I'd have to be have, there. You got to think about your own family. I, I had, I'd have to be there to see how you would react. let me in. Though, I, oh right? yeah. Like, yeah I mean, <laughs> if it was quick enough. If it was. <laughs> if the killer wasn't too close. <laughs> Didn't make it in time. <laughs> Sorry, Kate. He's really close. Good luck. <laughs>
So, yeah, so it was clear that she had gone from one door to the next before Miss Nelson, Ruth Nelson, opened the door to her. But again, it was clear based on the mess in the house that the struggle was rough. There was <sighs> blood on the walls, hair and, and stuff was like stuck to the wall. So it was just like clearly a, a huge struggle. Unfortunately, that afternoon, you know, within a couple hours of, of getting to the hospital, Carol did pass away. Oh, the coroner's report showed that she had a skull fracture, uh, brain hemorrhage, bruising of the brain. She had two stabs to her neck. She had more than 25 scratches to her head caused by a blunt object. Scratches and, to her head? That's how it de- that's how it described it, but it was clearly they were pretty significant wounds to her well, head. She, I mean, she could have gotten those falling down the stairs. Yeah, or, but yeah. they were I mean, it was they were made by a blunt object. So oh. So 25 pretty significant wounds to her head and then also defensive wounds to her hands. So, I mean, she put up a struggle. Yeah, she put up a hell of a fight yeah, and then she, to run to I mean, from three it, neighbors. And it went from, why no? Like, you're thinking like, it bedroom, bathroom, kitchen, front, you know, doorway, three neighbors. I mean, she just was like going for it. She And fought. I wonder how long she laid out there before someone saw her. I know. It's so, I'm yeah, you're right. I I don't know, but it but, sounds I mean, like maybe she and and yeah. maybe she I think it was like went to first neighbor and she was probably losing a lot of blood, so maybe she just like was out of it for shortly until she was able to regain strength to get to door number three. That evening, you know, family gathered at a, a neighbor's house in, in the Highland Park area. Jeff recalled that day many years later. He was taken to school by his dad. And then, you know, a couple hours later, he, you know, got removed from school. They told him, you know, your mom's been hurt. They were all gathered together while they were kind of waiting to hear what the prognosis was for his mom. And for some reason or another, they like let him go back to school. So then he went back to school for a couple more hours and they came and got him again to tell him that his his mom had died. So it's just like, he remembers it very well because he was 13 years old. And so it was just a really, really rough day. And remembers that evening, you know, with his dad. It's also pretty sad with Jeff because again, he was 13. He remembers pretty significantly that his last interaction with his mom was was not a good one the night before. I know, I know. And the night before, so he was like, Jeff was kind of a, I don't want to say a loner, but he was like a little different, I think. And he was super into comic books. And so that evening that the night before this happened, he, he was so excited. Like every day he'd come home from school and he would like organize his comics and put them in different piles and then read like a couple of them, like cover to cover. And he got home and his comic books were gone. And he went downstairs like, where the hell are my comics? And his mom's like, your dad and I talk and we decided you're spending too much time reading those comics so I burned them oh and he was pissed and he told her like I hate you and like stormed up to his room and was so upset and then the next morning you know the breakfast that they all had together he just sat there silently didn't acknowledge her didn't say anything so he's pretty typical stuff. obviously she knew that he loved her obviously that you know but still it's it's he remembers it very well and it's something he thinks about obviously still to this day so that evening, Jeff remembers his dad was just sobbing, clutching onto the kids. You know, he was scaring them because the kids are all young. You know, the the kids range from Jeff, yeah, who's Jeff's 13, the oldest, right? And the youngest is is Amy, who's six. And so all of the kids are kind of looking to their dad for like support and just like just to be like the pillar. And of course, he's he's struggling he's too. His how? wife just died, but yeah. but at the same point in time, like the kids are watching their dad fall apart, and then they are falling apart as well. So the detectives asked to talk to the children that evening. The children all said that not only Cotton, but but everyone in the family said, after today, we're not talking about this incident anymore. Oh, that's that's so 
that is so typical of the times. Right. They're like, close it in. It's a bad thing that happened and we're going to move past it. Yeah. And that's, that's essentially how they treated it. So they questioned Jeff and Jeff said that essentially what his father told him about the morning, what Cotton said about the morning that they had breakfast together, that Cotton brought him to school around eight. And he said that he normally walked to school, but again, that day his, you know, Cotton offered to bring him to school, which was different. He also, you know, admitted that he left the le- the side door of the house unlocked, which was just common. They always yeah. did that. They were like, this yeah. was just a thing. We always left that door unlocked. They talked to Margaret, who was the, the daughter who was, I think she was nine at the time. But she said, again, the, do- the side door was unlocked. They left for school around 810. And then Patricia, who was the second to the youngest, she and the youngest uh, daughter, Amy, left for school around 815. And again, the door was unlocked. So the side door was unlocked as it always was, as everyone always kept their doors unlocked. I mean, they lived and supposedly they lived in a, a safe area. Very safe, very upscale neighborhood. Yeah. Things didn't happen. Yeah. So like I said, they wanted to get things back to normal as quickly as possible. Cotton went back to work the next day. The kids went back to school the next day and they moved back into the house pretty quickly. So within like a week, they had gotten in there, cleaned it up and were back in the house almost right away. The whole family. So not just Cotton, but Carol's parents. So Otto and Tony were, were very close to, to, they came to, to Carol to help, and Cotton. Help, help with the kids. And they and helped with the kids. They were very involved. Um, oh, how hard would that be? You'd think that you just want to get away from that house. Yeah. But but they they were like, we need to get things back to normal as quickly as possible. So Carol was buried March 9th. So just a couple of days later. And this is an interesting thing. Cotton was kind of pressuring the family to agree to have her cremated. But a lot of people were like, mm, that seems fishy. Let's not yeah, do if that. If it's not stated explicitly, like in her, you know, yeah, her a will or like you know. healthcare directive or something like that. Yeah. And she was very, she was they were Presbyterian, but I think they, I think I read that she was raised Catholic. And so it's very, yeah, yeah you don't get you cremated. You don't get cremated. So the police were, were they investigating this? So, yeah. So right away, they, they started investigating things pretty quickly. Because and the house is going to be evident. So they, they did do a thorough investigation of the house. I mean, this was a, this was a, a high profile crime. Well, she yeah. was, she was a, a, a rich white woman. Exactly. And, yeah. and Cotton was a well-known St. Paul attorney. Prominent so, business in the area and so and this was like front page news in in minneapolis and st paul at the time like everyone was freaked out locks were you know in high demand people can get their hands on like good locks same with like guns and and shells and bullets were, were like sold out it was just people were freaked out so at first cotton was the primary suspect because you know yeah. the husbands are always the first ones to be looked at although as i said none of the couple's mutual friends believe cotton could have had anything to do with the murder they said he was just they seemed like a loving family they never saw, seemed like to be in any marital trouble and and he seemed so upset about her murder like the night after she had died cotton was like drinking and and he was just sobbing and like duh you know and and at one point carol what have i done to you he yelled out and that seemed fishy to some people but again people were like he's being dramatic he's depressed he was he was drinking like yeah i think it's it's really hard you you hear about all these people that have all these you know suspicious reactions or don't he was acting strange but people were like he's just going through a lot and in addition he had a huge he had like a rock solid alibi he was at work like his his co-workers all saw him at work from 8.30 till he received that call from the neighbor shortly after nine. So he was he was downtown. He was at his, his office. 
you know, had this alibi. So everyone's like, he couldn't have possibly done it. He was interviewed at the hospital twice. And he gave the cops a couple of different ideas for for people he thought could have been involved. The first person that he suggested was a door to door window salesman named Big Red. His real name was it was Kenneth Moran. And Cotton said that he had a big crush on Carol. He was a friend to Carol. Lots of people knew of like Carol and uh, Big Red's friendship about a year before. So he sold them some windows. But after the fact, they became and, and continued to be kind of good friends. But in addition, they they started going on like friendly outings. They went to a mu- museum together. They went up to her cabin with like their families a couple of times. But it was always like very platonic. She did tell friends that she liked him. She found him attractive, but she only loved her husband. So she's like, there's nothing that's going to happen between Big Red and I. We're just friends. But does Big Red know that? (laughs) So (laughs) there was a situation when Cotton came home one day early from work and Big Red was in the yard talking to Carol. And apparently Cotton was yelling at him and told him to leave. And it really embarrassed Carol. But after that, it was like he was jealous. So he he started changing and, and gave Carol more attention, gave the kids more attention, which she really like. She really liked that. Yeah, you know, sometimes you got to remind them that you're still desirable. Exactly. So although there were like there was like talk that Big Red might be involved, he was found again to have an airtight alibi, and he also passed a polygraph test. So he had he was ruled out pretty quickly. Cotton also suggested perhaps one of his prior clients might be involved. So he to get back at him. Yeah, I mean he he was uh, part of defending creeps you know he had a lot of customer a lot of clients well, geez, that were it could have been anyone because he was prosecuting he was defending exactly. he was personal injury yeah he was- exactly so he had like a laundry list of of uh you know clients that he thought perhaps might be involved in some shady shit and he was like it maybe it was one of them i don't know so he gave these you know couple ideas to to cops they investigated these things but but didn't really find any any weight in them During the early part of the investigation, the police also found that Cotton had purchased almost $1.1 million in life insurance. Here we go. On Carol. And this was in the months leading up to her death. Oh, Now, $1.1 million in 1963. Any guesses what that was at that time? Like, or what what that converts to today? $5 million. $10 million. Can you imagine that in today's, like having $10 million in life insurance? That's insane. It was specifically bizarre because he did have a significant policy on himself too. He had almost, he had $400,000 in in life insurance against himself, but $400,000 for himself and over a million for for her. So it was like- Yeah, and she's a housewife and he's working with shady mafia-like characters. Right. And so he had this, you know, 400,000, which is about $4 million in today's dollars. But Cotton said that it was sort of a bragging thing. He would be like, I'm so rich. I have a million dollars in life insurance for Carol. Like he also mentioned several times that he had been having like really cryptic dreams about Carol, like about her dying in boating accidents or other like creepy dreams about her dying. So it was just like, he felt nervous. So he felt like he had to insure her. In addition, some anonymous tippers started calling in and a lot of people had some things to say about Cotton and his love for women. Oh, so were any of the tipsters ladies? You know, there were a lot. There were just, yes, there were ladies. There were men that called in and a lot of them had to say a lot of things about Cotton in terms of he's seeing other women. He has a a specific mistress. He's paying for her to live in an apartment. 
So a lot of things were starting to come out about Cotton showing that maybe he wasn't a great guy. So Cotton's first kind of official interview with the police was on March 8th. So just a couple of days after Carol had been murdered. Again, he gave the idea that he thought Big Red must might be involved, but he didn't have a whole lot of other information and he was clearly not comfortable talking to them. Like he was not interested in like having this long discussion. They said he seemed a little bit jittery. So after that interview on March 8th, Cotton kind of started ignoring the police. He wouldn't talk to them Well, anymore. that's one way to go about it. But <laughs> instead of, of speaking to the police, he released like a public statement of his own. So a couple of weeks later, he always, addressed always public- a good move. I know. He, yeah. So he took out like a six and a half page like article in the newspaper to address the public. And he wanted to address public concerns about life insurance. He itemized the family's income. He itemized trips he and Carol had taken in prior years. And he described new home renovations, having to give away the family dog. He basically wanted to talk, like hit on every concern the public had about like his role, his potential role in this and be like, listen, yes, I had life insurance, but it was only because of this. And yes, I got rid of the dog, but it was only because I was, we were renovating our house. So he was trying to like preempt explain away exactly every possible scenario that could have made him seem like he had involvement also side note how does renovating your house justify giving away your dog he claimed that uh the dog had bladder problems and so they had just gotten new carpet and he was like we got to get rid of the dog oh yeah i got a fix for that problem (laughs) let him outside or like yeah potty train him i don't know just a (laughs) thought so this just added more fuel to the fire it was like People were like, oh, this weird, like you give this public statement, like wh- why are you trying to defend yourself? Like it seems pretty guilty of you. So people started having some feelings about Cotton. Now he had a second interview a few days after that. And at that time he brought an attorney with him. He brought a court reporter and he basically just went over the same things. He again. went, a, he brought a court reporter. You know, he wanted, he wanted everything like recorded. He had a very cocky personality. Like, I can't be touched. I'm Mr. Big Shot here. And I think that that's how he presented himself when he was, you know, this this whole time. Well, and he was a defense attorney. So he thought, like, I can beat the cops. Right. I do it all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. I think he just had that, that mentality. So the police ended up making a public plea for information and offered a reward for more information. And that's when more tips started coming in. Again, Cotton having many affairs. People were saying that Cotton was acting strange after the murder. Basically went back to his his life before the murder. He was acting as if nothing had happened. He was going out for fancy dinners. Like the day of the funeral, he went out to the Lexington, which is a really nice restaurant here in the Twin Cities. People were saying women were coming to the house and he would, he'd be out at like, you know, at night they'd be, you know, all the guys of the town, the cops and and the attorneys would be at like these fancy bars. And and they said like, he would be like, he'd go over to people and just randomly be like, so do you think I did it? Wow. Okay. So another tip that came in, claimed that Cotton had something to do with a murder in terms of hiring a hitman. So I know you mentioned that earlier. Yeah, and, and I didn't several... need to jump the gun, but huh, like he, gun. He, he knows some some guys that have done some bad things. Yep. More than one person called in with, with that tip. And then in addition to people just generally referring to him being a, a philanderer, a lot of calls referred to a woman named Jackie Olson. Jackie was a 27-year-old who met Cotton during uh, a friend's divorce, and she admitted she had an affair with him for a couple of years, between 1961 and 62. But Cotton wouldn't leave his wife wife for her. And so she was like, I can't do this. If you're not going to leave your wife, we're not going to, you know, we're done. So Jackie ended up getting married to somebody else in 1962. And, and after that, Cotton continued to pursue her. She worked at his office 
And, you know, after their breakup, he was like, if I pay you $10,000, will you break up with your boyfriend and, and get married to me? And she was like, no, you fucking creep. Like, no. What? <laughs> no. But I'm, I'm about to come into some money for right. this life insurance policy. So she said no. And Jackie's now husband said that he called Carol to tell her about, about the affair and to tell Carol, like, about Cotton's behavior towards Jackie. And Carol apparently didn't seem surprised. And she kind of, yeah, she, she, she gave like a, campy. no, she said she, she didn't act surprised. She kind of did like a nervous laugh. And I mean, like, if he's I, coming up to cops and saying like, so do you think I did it? Like, he's not going to hesitate with his wife to be out in public and like, you can bet that he flirted with women in front of oh, her. Absolutely. And like, he didn't, you know, try to hide. No, anything. the neighbors talked about like neighbor, like her best friends would be like, he would be like rubbing my leg or like, like I didn't want to be around him without other people. Cause I thought he would like pursue me and I didn't want to end a friendship. So, so he was clearly like not shy about that. So I'm sure Carol knew something was going on, Gross. but, but Jackie and her husband both had alibis. So again, they were off the list, you know, after the tips of, of, of the life insurance of the philandering of, the hitman theory of him, his weird behavior, the police were honing in on him as kind of the prime suspect. So April 5th, so about a month later, there's a press conference. And during this press conference, police showed fragments from the gun handle, which were found at the scene. Now, this gun handle was very unique. It was like black and white plastic laminate. And it was really one of a kind. It looked like it had actually been handmade. So after showing this off and hoping that somebody would call in and and, and be able to identify this handle, That's exactly what happened. A man named Wayne Brandt called the police a couple of days later and said, I know who owned that gun grip because I made it. Like, I made that gun grip. I know who who owned it. Wait a minute. But she wasn't shot. She wasn't shot. But fragments of a handle. Oh, oh, not that. So the gun wasn't anywhere near it. It was just like. Clearly a gun was present during the attack. It was. She wasn't shot. But do you remember she was beat up pretty badly? Yeah, I remember by by a blunt object. and And so. So, like, there were fragments of this this gun handle. So, you know. In the house. In the house. Okay. Yes. So, sorry. found, like, next to her body. All right. I'm caught up. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I didn't make that clear. No. <laughs> so, police displayed fragments of, of this handle, which were found at the scene. And this man called and said, I know who owned, owned that gun grip. I made it. The gun... However, so the police followed up with this fella who, who they, you know, who he said this he fella who, who <laughs> Wayne Brandt said he, he made this gun grip for. And the man, unfortunately was like, yeah, he's right. He did make that for me, but that gun was stolen from me a few weeks ago. Hmm. And it was stolen right before Carol Thompson was killed. So it was a huge runaround, but during that time. And I think, I mean, maybe to some extent today, there are certain criminals that just police know about, right? Police are like, oh, yeah. I'm looking for a burglar. I know generally who to look for. And so a few weeks later, a couple of men were arrested for some local burglaries. And the cops were like, hey, so I know you, you committed these burglaries, but do you know anything about a burglary at this house like from a few weeks back? Yeah. You know, where this gun was stolen. Yeah. And they're yeah. like, yep. Yep. That was us. <laughs> so they admitted <laughs> to it. Like, what? yep. That was us. <laughs> So one of the burglars, all the dumb. So honestly, though, this makes sense though, because so one of the burglars, so I think they knew pretty quickly once the cops were questioning them, like about this specific handgun, I think they were like, Oh shit. Like that gun was used for something serious. Like, yes, I was a burglar. Yes. I committed burglary, but I did not kill anyone. Yes. I violate people's privacy and (laughs) sense of security, but I would never, ever 
I won't. No. Exactly. (laughs) So I think it was quickly like, oh shit, like we could be in trouble. Yes, I know. Yes, yes. I was involved in that burglary. Right. Yes, I did steal that gun. I didn't have anything to do with the murder. So they admitted to stealing the gun, but he said, I gave that gun to a man named Norman Mostrain. He said he then saw this man named Norman Mostrain pass it to another man, Dick Anderson. So they were like, these two guys, Norman and Dick, those two, they had the gun the last time I saw it. So those two, like, I would talk to them. They they must know where this gun is. Oh, my goodness. So Norman Mostrain, who is he? He is a 40-year-old man. He was a married father of two. He was a suspect in a 1961 execution-style murder of a St. Paul restaurant owner. And shockingly, his attorney was Cotton. I was just going to say that. That was enough for the police to arrest him with you know, some indication that some something fishy had gone on. So on April 19th, the police arrested Mostrain. They also arrested Dick Anderson, the other gentleman who was referenced with, with, gentleman. with regards to the yeah. gun. And he was a 35-year-old man. He worked selling roofing and siding door-to-door, and he was well-known in Minneapolis for petty crime. So he was one of those well-known people in Minneapolis for, for robbery, burglaries, transporting stolen Wait, vehicles. Wait, wasn't Big Red a door-to-door salesman? He was. Windows? He was. That w- That is a very strange coincidence. But door-to-door Nothing. salesmen were pretty common. I think you're right. Yeah. yeah, I think you're right. So after the police released the pictures of the handle grip, Dick Anderson fled to Arizona. He was, it was clear that he had something to hide and he was like freaked out. <laughs> so police in Arizona picked him up and again arrested him on, on April 19th. So Cotton once again did a, a press release of his own on April 19th to be, like, to be like, oh, bravo, cops. Thank you so much for all your hard work. For You're getting doing great. This. So he was, you know, just very like, a complimentary of, of the police. But like, patronizing. Probably yeah. patronizing and also like, oh shit, things are starting to hit the fan. So the burglars who had given up uh, Anderson and, and Mastery, and like I said, they were like, clearly they were like, oh, we'll tell you anything because we did not have anything to do with this shit. We, we, yeah. we will steal shit. A burglary we charge is a lot different than being executed. Right. So, so. they just like, they kept talking and, and told them anything that they could think shit, of. Shit, I would. So they gave information that Anderson had been paid $3,000 by Mostrain to kill Carol. And $3,000 is roughly $30,000. Yeah. So they also said that they were personally asked by Mostrain if they would take money to to kill somebody. And so they they were like, Mostrain was like, he was the person coordinating all of this. I don't know how Anderson got involved, but Mostrain was the one that, that spoke to us. We gave him the gun. He was the ringleader. He was the ringleader here. Um, these burglars asked Mastrian, like, why do you want to kill someone? Like, what, what, what's, what's the deal? Who is this guy? Who is this person that you want to kill? And they said, it's, it's some broad and we just want to kill her for the insurance money. So after being presented with this information, Dick Anderson asked for a deal. He's like, okay, (laughs) I think you have some stuff against me. I'm, I'm not going to say I, you're right, but I'm not going to say you're wrong. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so can we, can we like make a deal? <laughs> the police uh, agreed to to work with him and he and Mostrain together provided the location for the pistol, which was in Elk River, which is, is north which of is the city. Which is now cities. without a handle. Yeah. So, so they went and were able to locate the pistol. You know, someone always finds that shit though. I know. You always but- got that one guy like... Oh, Herbie Landstrom's out there going fishing, or he's like, "Well, I was just looking for snakes." And then it's like, like, why? like what? Like, there's always some swamp guy, or like <laughs> someone looking for ferrets out in the wild, and they come across this shit. Like, you can't hide anything. You can't hide anything. Just know that. So 
it was clear after they examined the pistol that this pistol had been beat hard on something or someone. So, oh. so it was, it was, uh, uh, it was clear that this, this gun had been used in the attack, not to shoot somebody, but to beat somebody. So Anderson said that he had been hired by Mostrain to kill Carol. He said he tried to do it on, on March 5th. That was the day he was going to do it, but he like got cold feet. So before this, Anderson was like involved in burglaries or robberies or like stealing things, but he was never a violent criminal. Oh, that's why the money, that's why, you know, money is the root of all evil. The thing that gets me is beating her with a gun is so just you're prolonging her suffering there must have been something wrong with the gun like i don't know why if she's fighting you and struggling you would stab her in the neck and beat her with a gun instead of just shooting her like well anderson tells us why this all happened he is not shy in giving us a play-by-play of the attack well he knows he's done yeah and honestly and he doesn't I think he, I think he feels sad and bad about it because I think he, he got, he got like looped into this. He, again, previously was not involved in anything like this. Like he was a petty criminal. I think he saw like $30,000 and was like, yeah, I could kill somebody. And then when he actually did it, he was like, fuck, that was, that was rough. So like I said, his plan was to, to commit the crime on March 5th, but he got cold feet. So the morning of March 6th, he drank alcohol and he snuck into the house before the family woke up and hid in the basement. And his plan was to surprise Carol while she took a call from Cotton in the kitchen that morning. The only phone in the house was in the kitchen. And he knew that Carol would get a call from her husband at 8.30 in the morning. He knew that she'd be at the top of the stairs and his plan was to get up there. That was his signal then. He thought he'd get up there, hit her with the rubber hose, which is the hose that that we saw. So he was hiding in the basement. He was hiding in the basement. And the phone was his signal. So his plan was to surprise Carol when she took a husband or a call from her husband uh, in the kitchen. But he missed his window of opportunity. Apparently, when he went downstairs that morning, like when he creeped his ass into the house that morning, he found out that the stairs were creaky. So he's like, oh, I can't do that. So he missed that opportunity. Instead, he snuck upstairs and surprised Carol while she read a book in bed. So the plan was to beat Carol unconscious and then drown her in a bath that was left half full. I don't think things ever go according to Uh Well, Carol, again, was just a boss ass bitch. Yeah. And she fought for her life. She came to after she had initially been like knocked unconscious. And she basically fought that man all over the house. She ran back. So he, he knocked her unconscious and then dragged her into the bathroom, was going to try and, and drown her in the tub. She came to, she ran back to her room, oh, got her, God. got her robe on. And then was screaming at him like, my husband's a defense attorney. Please, you don't have to do this. He'll defend you. Like, please, please just leave. Which um, he could have left. Right. Now, Mastering gave Anderson a gun in case he, in case something went awry, which it did. And so Anderson tried to use the gun on Carol, but it didn't fire. So instead of using it to shoot her, he then beat her over the head with this gun. Oh my God. And And he's probably panicking. Right. I'm not saying that in a sympathetic way. No, but like he's never done something like this before. So he's like, oh shit. Like, so he's starting to beat her over the head. She's like begging for her life. She at one point took off her wedding ring, was like, please take this, like, just take this and leave. Like trying to like bribe him with money to just let her live. (sighs) 
And then he ran to the kitchen, got a kitchen knife, and that's when he stabbed her in the throat. So after stabbing her twice in the throat, he thought that she was dead. And so he went upstairs to wash up and make it look like a burglary. And as we know, Carol wasn't dead and she managed to stumble out, stumble to the neighbor's house. And that's where, you know, her neighbors, uh, Ruth Nelson, saw her and, and came to her aid on her front door. So after he notices that she's gone, he literally is like, oh, shit, she's gone. And he just leaves. He just walks out, walks down the I road mean, a few blocks <laughs> to his to his what car. What can you do at that point? And what Anderson said is he, I don't know if he regretted doing what he did, but it really fucked him up. He certainly had some feelings and 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 stated like he never saw anybody who wanted to live so hard in his life. Good. So he also said, I couldn't believe that she could take that much punishment because he just said she kept fighting. I mean, she she came to after he beat her over the head with a hose. She ran in to get clothed and was was attempting to solicit some sort of empathy or, or something from him. She was using different yeah, tactics. Trying, yeah, yeah. She stayed conscious while he was beating her mercilessly over the head with a pistol so bad that like the pistol bent and the, the hand I was fell say, off. It's either- he stabbed her twice in the throat and she managed to get out of the house and run to not one but two but three yeah, neighbors' three. houses. I mean, she's a freaking badass so after Mastrian and anderson are arrested they're indicted they're in jail and they didn't want to talk anymore they're like we might be able to get a deal so let's just keep quiet maybe they'll come to anderson. us <laughs> it's a little late yeah already and after all of this still they haven't in, they haven't looped cotton in in any way they've just said like nope we did this this was a burglary oh. but again so much suspicion continues to well, be what cotton. would be what else would be that i mean the motive. They, I think at this point, Mastering is like, we just wanted to, we were just robbing a house. Yeah, burglarizing. We've done it a million times before and we haven't been violent, but. It was, it was Anderson who finally cracked. And yeah. he came to them and he was shaking and just like sweating. And it's like, I need to, I need to get this off my chest. Yeah. So again, I don't, he never specifically was like, I feel bad about this. I don't think he ever said that those words, at least that I saw, but he clearly felt some some sort of way about well, his actions. Well, he could feel regret at his actions, but no remorse. In June of 1963, he spilled spilled the beans and said that Mastrain offered to pay him $3,000 to kill Carol. Apparently, Mastrain had convinced Cotton that that he would be the one committing the crime. And so the real problem here was that if if Mastrain and, and Cotton had just stuck to it and it would have been those two, honestly, they might have gotten away with it. But the, Mastrian went and found a subcontractor for the hit. <laughs> he delegated. Yeah, he delegated yeah. the task. And Anderson was not reliable. Yeah. <laughs> also, he wasn't a killer. Like, he he ended up killing her, but he he had never done this before. And so he screwed a bunch of stuff up and, and made, for the better in this case. So we, we found out who did it. But that um, just goes to show you people always hire experts. Exactly. Like, you don't want. Don't go cheap. No. Angie's list that stuff. Yeah, you don't want Dickie Anderson playing around with your plumbing. It's- you need you need a five-star contractor, right? Yeah. You don't want the three stars. No, you got to look on Yelp for that shit. Exactly. So Anderson said that him and Mastrain had gone over what they needed to do. They drove past the house. Mastrain provided a floor plan to the house and, and said the side door is going to be open. You know, the family leaves that unlocked. Said that around nine, the kids are going to be at school. Cotton is going to drop off his son at school that day and head to the office. Mastrain also told Anderson, like, there's not any dogs. Like, Cotton handled that. There's no dog in the house. Oh, now we know. And then in addition, he said the only phone in the house is in the kitchen. And apparently just two days before that, there had been a phone that was in the couple's bedroom, in Cotton and Carol's bedroom, 
but Cotton had removed the phone. He did that because when she got the phone call, she would have to be at the bottom of the stairs. She'd have have to be at the top of the stairs to the basement. He thought through this. He, Cotton thought through this. Exactly. And and he kind of gave Monster and so all of methodical. these. So methodical. So it was clear based on, on the details from Anderson that the only person who could have provided these details were Cotton. He knew that there was going to be a call around nine to Carol, the floor plan, the dog, the, the phone, you know, the phones being switched. He also mentioned that before he left for the day, Cotton said he would fill that bathtub half full and leave it half full. So again, these were things that were like, obviously Cotton had to be involved. And so based on the confession of Anderson, uh, based on the information from Mastrain and all the other thugs who had provided information, the tips, they finally arrested Cotton on June 21st, 1963, which uh, was actually his son Jeffrey's birthday. <laughs> so, oh, I, I know. Oh, that's terrible. <sighs> so yeah, that day, it's really sad. In, in one of the books I read, Jeffrey talks a lot about that day because it was like, it was his birthday. So he like, he actually like had a really good day (laughs) up until, so he had a really good day, asked a like a really attractive girl out. She agreed to go out with him. And then on the way to like making plans, he fell on his bike, got completely like banged up, like got like road rash put on like a nice outfit for the date. And then like after the movie realized his, his sores had like soaked through his shirt. So he had this like disgusting shirt on bleeding. And then they went out and he like, he realized like these girls were only interested in his friend. So he's like bleeding. He like is in pain. And then they go out to like this, a drive-in or whatever, like a a restaurant. And like, as he's passing back a root beer, he dumps it on his head. Oh, buddy. I feel you. We've all been there. And he's like, he's like, so I was sitting in bed that night thinking like, how could this day get any worse? And then he hears his dad getting arrested downstairs. (sighs) Cotton obviously hired some experienced criminal attorneys and um, the trial started just like six months later in October, it always like baffles my mind because these days trials take forever to get started. Like the pretrial process is so long. Yeah. But like you, I read true crime stories from like the the 40s and 50s and like the crime happens, the person is tried and convicted and then executed all within like three months. Oh, and the I'm executions, like, what? like the executions are so fast. Mm-hmm. It's, it's in like Jesus. Nowadays you're on, if you're on death row, you're on death row for like at least a decade. Even if you waive all your appeals, it's like at least three years. Even if you live in Texas or Florida. They can't kill you quick enough. So uh, the trial starts October 28th, 1963, and it ended up being a pretty significant trial. It was six weeks long. It was dubbed the trial of the century by the press and just had the Twin Cities completely captivated. People lined up to try and get one of the 35 courtroom seats every day. It was just like this absolute- Oh, yeah. Well, because he's a prominent businessman. Right. And we love to see the mighty fall. People were just loving this. So- it originally was going to be tried in St. Paul, but they did get the the venue changed to Minneapolis because of all the publicity. So, <laughs> like, it's that far. Right. I know, literally it, across the Mississippi. They were like, "Why didn't like, you try and go down yeah. to like Rochester <laughs> or something?" Like they truly like even the book. They were like, they were, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, Why didn't you go further away? I think it was just him be trying to make things difficult. But the prosecution relied on seven links of circumstantial evidence. The circumstantial evidence included removal of the phone from the bedroom. Removal of the dog from the home, the partially filled bathtub and the unlocked side door, Cotton's unusually early appearance at work the morning and the morning before. Because like I said, he did not go to work until 10 or 1030, but miraculously on March 5th and 6th, he was there at 830 both days. 
the prosecution had evidence of a payment from Cotton to Mastering for $2,500. How dumb are you? The huge life insurance policies and the mistress. So those were like the seven links of circumstantial evidence from the prosecution. And the defense basically used their opening statement to rebut these saying like, okay, yes, we did remove the phone, but that was only because we were going to get a better phone. And like we were in the process of, you know, we're redoing our house. We're going to get a better, more attractive looking phone. And yes, we removed the dog, but it was because the dog had bladder problems and we just added new car. He just, right. Yeah. And the the payment of $2,500 to Mastering, he was like, that was a retainer a I was refund? returning to him. There a was, guy who had a healthy appreciation Right, for exactly. Money. Yeah. Um, and he's like, yes, I had this mistress. Yes, I, I admit I was I was a philanderer, but we had called it off over a year before and, and Carol knew about it. Thing. So over the course of the trial, there were 107 witnesses that testified. So there were friends, family, Jackie Olson, the mistress. Carol's own mom took the stand in Cotton's defense. So Otto and Tony, this whole time, were standing behind Cotton. Said, Even after these guys came forward. Yep. He, they still believed that, that Cotton couldn't have done this. Some they people loved him. so desperately want to believe that they have not been deceived. And that's so severely. So Dick Anderson's testimony described like the pre-killing meetings with Mastrain. He gave a play-by-play of the attack. Uh, this is he said when he saw Carol in her room reading, like when he first got up to the to her bedroom, he said, turn your head so you don't have to see me. And then he beat her unconscious with a tube. He told all of this to the jury. Oh, and he wasn't, he did it in such detail, but it wasn't like unemotional. It was just like this is what happened. I'm telling you the truth. So people he was very believable. Now, Cotton, of course, felt like he should take the stand because he's a cocky son of a bitch. Yeah. And he spent three days of testimony basically recounting his personal history, his history with Carol, and again saying, rebutting those seven circumstantial links. Most people said that his testimony was condescending. It was incomplete and it was not convincing. He sounded like a prick. <laughs> and the way he acted to the prosecutor was he'd like just roll his eyes and he would he would call him by his first name, which of course is just very condescending. Oh, total narcissist. Yeah. And yeah. he'd be sighing and interrupting questions. Just, just a prick. So Ugh. he did not do himself any favors by testifying. And everyone's like, there was no way his attorney thought that was but a good idea. But in his mind. He was like, huh, look at me. So his own son, you know, Jeffrey t- takes the stand as Poor well. Kid. The purpose was to poke holes in uh, Anderson's testimony. It was there was it was this uh, discrepancy between like whether or not the basement light was on. It was short and sweet, but later in life, Jeffrey admitted that he perjured himself. That <gasps> he actually lied on the stand to try and protect his dad. And so uh, after the testimony. You know, there was pictures of like of Cotton shaking his son's hand and like giving him a watch and just be like, just you just being like, I'm really proud of you, son. You know, poor kid. And the whole time Cotton's just acting like a big shot. Like he's taking reporters out to out to fancy meals after court. And just he seemed like he was so thrilled at his notoriety. He was oh, just, clearly so confident in his own charm right. that he can skate on by. So the jury went out on December 5th after this six, it was six weeks of of trial testimony. And after 12 hours of jury deliberations, Cotton was found guilty of first degree murder. Well, thank God. And he was sentenced to life in prison. So prior to 1980 in Minnesota, life in prison imposed a mandatory 25 year sentence before parole was approved. So you had like life in prison meant at least 25 years, but you know, up to life essentially, but you would get time off for like good behavior and other things too. So So life could mean, you know, eight years. Yeah, Yeah. far less than 25 years. Yeah. So overnight, Cotton's biggest supporters, like his in-laws, disowned him. Immediately when he was found guilty, Carol's parents were like, you're dead to us. Carol's mom went so far, like she cut his face out of pictures. She was like, they won't speak his name. 
they had nothing to do with him. Ugh. They were just absolutely well, appalled by him. Now, the killer, Anderson, as well as Mastering, were also found guilty of murder and sentenced to the same life in prison. They were all sent to uh, the maximum security state prison in Stillwater, which, side note, I've been there. It is a very cool prison. <laughs> when I was in law school, I got to, I represented some people um, in prison and we got to go visit that, that prison. It was just fascinating. Um, I've visited some prisons, but not that one. Yeah. That's a, I mean, we got to go in there and it was like, it was, it was fascinating, just absolutely fascinating. But, but yeah, so Mastrain and Cotton stayed there for their full sentences, but Anderson was moved to uh, Leavenworth, Kansas because he, he felt like his life was in danger. And, and and it was like at one point, days after everyone was sentenced, he recanted everything he said. And he's like, it was all a lie. And then like oh. the next day he was like, it wasn't a lie, but I'm being threatened. So can you please like move me? Yeah. Which is interesting because Leavenworth is hardcore. Yeah. Yeah. So like you don't want to go there. Yeah. But he's like, I'll take that over Stillwater. <laughs> over Stillwater? Yeah. That's the Stillwater prison is pretty hardcore, but. But Which is so crazy. I know, because Stillwater is so quaint and beautiful. so adorable. Yeah, like, like, oh, I'll go yeah, to Stillwater, oh. not the prison, the city. <laughs> I'm the St. Croix. <laughs> in prison, Cotton remained optimistic of his release. His two appeals failed, and he did end up sending his entire sentence in prison. So he stayed in touch with his kids. His kid would, kids would come to visit in prison occasionally. Usually they would end up talking about how Cotton felt he had been falsely accused. And Cotton was very firm on, like, you believe me, right? I'm your dad. You believe me, right? So, uh, so that, like, that, oh, God, that's so fucked up. Yeah. Like, so, I, so Jeffrey stayed in, con- Jeffrey would visit him, I think, like he said, monthly. The other kids kind of, it was interesting because all the kids did their own thing. Like, Jeffrey had a relationship with him, but like Amy did not. Amy was the youngest one. She didn't have any, she didn't go visit him. I don't think at all. Maybe one time when she like turned 18 or something. Well, but she, if you, she only had six years to love her father. Yeah. And so while in prison, Cotton helped prisoners with legal questions and like the gem of a human he was, he tried to collect Carol's life insurance money to yeah. which they said, no, no. But instead the, the kids were able to to get the life oh, insurance Oh, were the money. kids? Okay, so, so if they thankfully did, they all oh, split the life insurance okay. money. But so after serving 20 years of their sentences, all three people involved, Cotton, Mastrain, and Anderson were all paroled in the early 1980s. So Jeff and his siblings all wrote to the parole board in support of their dad's release. Jeff, by this time, had become an attorney himself. And he reviewed the evidence thoroughly. And he, after reviewing the evidence, he did believe that his dad was guilty. But he was like, 20 years is enough. Like, he's not going to hurt anybody. Let him out. This was his third parole hearing. And he was finally granted uh, parole. All of the siblings just felt like him being in prison had been such a so emotionally taxing on them that they were just ready for him to get out because they were like, we, we have this pull that we have to go see him. He's, he's like guilt tripping us. You know, we don't like going to the prison. It's not a fun place to visit. It it makes us feel icky. Like just let, let him out. So yeah, 1983, he, he was released from prison. So the Thompson kids, I didn't touch a whole lot on them after, after the murder, but there was a pretty bitter custody battle between Carol's parents and Cotton siblings. Ultimately, Carol's parents uh, were granted custody of the kids and they were able to stay in Highland Park throughout their childhood. Yeah. They all moved into a house. It was just a couple blocks away. But like I said, Jeffrey became an attorney. He attended, again, William Mitchell Go Eel Pouts um, and became a district attorney and then a judge in Southeast Minnesota. So down by Winona. 
Patty became a teacher. Margaret went to school for vocal arts and started working in information technology for Dayton's. And Amy, I think Amy struggled a lot with, I, don't, I hate to say daddy issues, but I think she did. I think she had some struggled with, with male well, who figures. And so she ended up marrying a man that was 30 years older than her. He had a, a history of crime. He ended up you know, passing away, obviously, long before her. And she started working as an insurance agent, moved back to Minnesota, because for a time, she was living down in Louisiana. But Amy was the most distant of all the siblings for with her father, she just she didn't want anything really to do with him. So after his release, Cotton lived in St. Paul, he never admitted to to Carol's murder, never admitted to any wrongdoing. Well, he's too, he's too arrogant. But after the murder, the kids actually did a mock trial with their dad and we're like if you want to have a relationship with us you need to prove to us that that you didn't do this like we'll throw out all the rules of court present us evidence that you didn't actually commit this crime and the only thing he could present the only thing that he presented he was like this is gonna this is gonna clear my name it was like it's gonna blow your mind yeah it was like some blood splatter analysis that literally had like was completely irrelevant, didn't do anything. And they were like, this is shit. Like this doesn't do anything for us. And what? that's just so bizarre. Everyone's different with how they cope with stuff, but I would have just written him off. You're in a tough spot. Like this is your only surviving parent. Cotton was like very adamant of having a relationship with them. It wasn't like he was like, do what you want to do. He was like, you need to trust me. His, he would always say like, I'm your dad. You have to believe me. And they're like, dad, yeah. you we're adults now. And you yeah. haven't been around for more than, you know, like yeah. you haven't been around for any of our lives. Yeah. So no, we don't have to believe you. You need to prove to us that, that, that you're innocent. And he wasn't able to. And so at that point they were like, if you want to have a relationship w- with us, then you need to admit that you killed mom. And we can try, we can reevaluate at that point. And, and he just would never do that. So Cotton managed to have like a successful remainder of his life. He he started working as a systems analyst and, and got his real estate broker's license. And between 1983 and his death, I think it was like mid 2010s, I think 2015 or 2018, I want to say Cotton did pass away. But through the years, the kids did rekindle relationships. They weren't close. They like by the time of his death, Jeffrey said he hadn't seen him in a couple of years, but um, they did have, you know, they'd have meals or they'd see each other for birthdays or things like that. But it seems like Cotton like ended up having a a fruitful life and, and remarried a wonderful woman, they said, who was just like great. And he was successful. Jeffrey is a very successful attorney and he is a, is a judge. He's a senior judge. Now I looked him up. He's Think still down in in the Winona area, but good for him. For yeah, rising above is, and I think all the kids, like whether or not they had some struggles throughout their lives, they all managed to get back on their feet and are are successful in in doing what they're doing. And so the kids turned out great. A lot of people still call this an unsolved case because Cotton truly, like his theory was that there were there were some mob ties. Some people were trying to, you know, uh, they put I, a hit I out. Say and, if it walks like a duck. Yeah, it's, it's usually the most obvious yeah, solution. All of the circumstantial evidence po- pointed to him. I mean, it wasn't direct evidence, but there's not a whole lot of direct evidence. I mean, just in general. So, so yeah, so that is the murder of Carol Thompson happened right here in Minnesota. I didn't know about it until I read this that book that is my aunt tragic. Me. Yeah. And the house that interesting the murder happened is still there it's it's like a very expensive house wow that is an interesting case i mean tragic and interesting 
Uh, God bless her. I mean, she was a fighter. I know. That- she seemed like an awesome woman. She loved her kids. She's like, it's, it's sort of funny that my aunt Julie, like, is the reason that I'm telling the story because my aunt Julie, she like is a huge crafter. She loves crafting. She's a master seamstress. She can her sewing skills are insane. So she identified so, with the victim. Yeah, I'm like, I'm a little bit like, hi, you and you and Carol maybe have a little bit in common here. So, and I also, I've always felt like I have very similar traits. Like she's like, loves gardening, loves crafting, loves baking. So I've, I've always been like, ah, oh, me and my Aunt Julia are maybe some kindred spirits. So maybe I connect a little bit with Carol too, but oh, RIP. She seemed like a badass woman. That's all we have for tonight. Next week is my turn again. Woo-hoo, I got a wait. good one. <laughs> <laughs> and don't forget, you guys can find us uh, on Instagram at premeditated podcast or shoot us an email at the premeditated podcast at gmail.com. If you have any ideas or thoughts or inspiration that you want to share, please do. But that's it for tonight. Thanks for listening. Well, thank you, Katie, for sharing that, you know, local case. That was very interesting. It's always interesting to discover cases that are so close to home. And, you know, you can really identify with the locations and the people and the situation. So it was an interesting one to, to research. That's for sure. Thanks for listening, guys. We will see you next week. And tell tell your your folks we said hi.